I don't know if you you all can hear, but there's all these helicopters searching, circling over my house. I think they're looking for me. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by CodeClimate. CodeClimate's new security monitor alerts you immediately when vulnerabilities are introduced into your Rails app. Sleep better knowing that your data is protected. Try it free at rubyrogues.com slash CodeClimate. This episode is sponsored by SendGrid, the leader in transactional email and email deliverability. SendGrid helps eliminate the cost and complexity of owning and maintaining your own email infrastructure by handling ISP monitoring, DKIM, SPF, feedback loops, white labeling, link customization, and more. If you'd rather focus on your business than on scaling your email infrastructure, then visit www.sendgrid.com. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 125 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have David Brady, Katrina Owen. Why not? Yo, hi. <laughs> Wait, I was muted. <laughs> Abdi Grimm. I didn't have a funny joke, so. We also have Abdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. Josh Susser. Timing. Oh wait, no, wrong, wrong punchline. <laughs> James Edward Gray. I can't compete with that. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I just want to give you a quick reminder that I did put up the video about my story going freelance, and you can get that at goingroguevideo.com. So this week we're going to be talking about Dave's post on heartmindcode.com. That's where he blogs about loyalty and layoffs. To kick us off, Dave, do you want to just quickly explain what the posts were about? Yeah, so... Oh, hang on. I forgot one order of business. Oh, yes. Yes, we always forget this, and we suck. We have to get better at this. Yeah, but we do really appreciate our unofficial rogues. Unofficial rogue is somebody who signs up for Ruby Rogues Parlay and uh, contributes $50 a month to the show, and we really, really appreciate that. Um, our, our unofficial rogue this week is Mark Turner. So thank you, Mark. Yay! Thank you, thank Mark. You, Mark. Yay, thank you, Mark. All right. Well, uh, now, Dave, <laughs> do you want to sum up those posts for us? Okay, so uh, the... the uh, I will do my best to TLDR this. A few weeks ago, a, a client that I worked at uh, laid everybody off, and, and it was it was brutal. It was cold. They they held held an all hands meeting and said, "You're all fired. Um, there's no severance. We're going out of business. Uh, there's no Cobra. There's no coverage. People that are outside of the state um, are not eligible for unemployment. You're just all out in the cold right now." And a lot of the people that I really liked that company had not been curating their own careers. And I was so sick at heart at how they'd been treated. And then I kind of got angry that they let this happen to them. So I know we're not supposed to blame the victim, but, but at the same time, I was also feeling very sick at heart that they had kind of let this happen to themselves. And so I wrote a post called Loyalty and Layoffs. And it was, it's an epic, it's like 3,000 words. It's one of the longest blog posts I've written. Um, and very, very angry talking about me getting laid off and realizing that, you know, that it sucks and that I would never let this happen to me again and that I needed to curate my own career. And the, the takeaway from it is that a corporation is, is, is just a fiction. It's, it's a, it's a document that is, exists for a purpose. 
And if you do not serve that purpose, you have no place there. And the CEO's job is actually to get rid of you or he's incompetent or she is incompetent if they don't, if they don't fire you for this. So being loyal to that corporation is, is a sickness. It's a madness. Um, and don't do it, but you, you absolutely can be loyal. I, I wrote some follow-up posts to it that it generated a lot of, uh, a feedback, got about a, 160 replies. Um, and I ended up having to go back and qualify and say, no, you can be elite. You can show your allegiance to a corporation, but don't, don't give your trust to a corporation. Um, trust only flows down because loyalty only flows up in a corporation. And, um, it sparked a lot of, uh, kind of controversy on Twitter. People very angry with me that were very happy at their jobs. Some people that were angry at me because they were comfortable at their jobs and the post made them suddenly very uncomfortable. And I'm kind of happy that those people are now feeling uncomfortable because that was the entire point of the post. And I'm going to stop there because I'm way past TLDR. <laughs> Let's move on to picks, shall we? Um, <laughs> it's about that time. <clears throat> yeah, I have to say, when you wrote that, uh, I was I was pretty close to the um, to the situation because I know all those folks too. And when I read it, I was just like, you know, he's he's totally right. And if you are comfortable where you're at, it, it does make you a bit uncomfortable. Makes you really think about what you're doing. Yeah. So I guess there's there's a couple of points. It sounded like that that maybe good discussion axes. And the first is this kind of idea of the company isn't really on your side, right? They're on their side. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that it, it, you know, if things change, it makes total sense for them to get rid of you. So to yeah. add an example of my own in that, I was working on a project a while back where they wanted to find more and more Ruby developers and they couldn't find the amount of Ruby developers that made them happy uh, because apparently we're scarce right now. And so their system was keep the Ruby development team building the app uh, and then off on the side in secret, hire a team to rebuild the entire thing in .NET. Yep. Wait till the .NET side caught up and then, you know, fire all the Ruby devs. So that was uh, very interesting, you know, to be a part of. But yeah, it's right. The idea is that the company will do what makes sense for the company, and that may or may not be to your benefit. Is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the there's, I think, going into it, there's, it, it's sort of an abusive relationship from the start. That yes. When you go work for a company, from from the very beginning, they don't pay you what you're worth. Because if they paid you what you were worth, they wouldn't be able to make any money off of you. Hmm. Uh, it, you know, you know, if, if they were, if they were, you know, if you were generating some amount of value and they were paying you what that value was worth, oh, yeah. they, they would, there would be no margin on it for them. Right. right. So, so we're, so working for somebody else is always something like an, an abusive relationship because you're always doing something that you're never getting compensated fairly for. I, I that's think, actually, I think that's, that's partially like, true, but I, I disagree a little bit. Um, mainly because in a lot of these cases, the application wouldn't make any money if they weren't keeping the lights on, providing you with equipment, paying the salespeople, okay. so, things like that. And so, so not, if, if you're, yeah. I, I just want to clarify, if you're taking value as the amount of money that the application you worked on as a whole and you divvy that up among the developers, that's not the value you generated. So yes. And, th and thank you for clarifying something that I didn't mean, but. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, yeah, that's not the point I was trying to make. I'm trying, the point I was trying, you know, yes, companies make accommodations that, you know, you know, you know there, there's, a, there's a certain trade-offs that you get, but they can never actually pay you the work, you know, what the value you're generating is worth. Mm-hmm. Otherwise there's- they wouldn't make money off of you. So from, so from the start, there, there's like this unfair power balance in the relationship. Yeah. There's actually an MBA business adage, which goes, if there's no margin, there's no mission. And so, yeah, if your company is not profiting from its employees, then it doesn't matter what your corporate mission statement is because you're not going to achieve it because as a company, you're going to die. Right. So, so basically, you can think about it like this, that if, if it's a consultancy saying that we hire developers to build apps, whatever that consultancy could bill at, that's not what they're paying their developers, obviously. Right. It, can't, yeah. it can't be. Because right. they, the company has to make some kind of money to cover company overhead. Right? Yeah, and we, and, and we talked about this on the the episode we did a couple of weeks ago, where it, you know sometimes it's just really worth taking a lower hourly rate so that the consulting firm can take care of all that business stuff that you don't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. And and if you go into those situations with your eyes open, I think there's there's nothing wrong with being in that kind of of business relationship with an employer, but. It's not, uh, it's not an even, an even power dynamic. If you, you yeah. know, if you, you know, you can walk off the job, they'll find somebody to replace you. You know, it, it, it depends on, on whether it's like a buyer's or seller's market. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, but, you know, sometimes if you walk off the job, they can't find anyone to replace you and then they're desperate and, and you have more power. And, you know, that's probably, that's probably like more of a conversation to have a little later about that power dynamic and yeah. how, how that either helps or hurts you depending on which way it's going. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the, the coda that I would put on it is, is, is the power dynamic worth it? Right. I mean, it, it can be a choice, right? You can, you can, you can choose to enter into that power dynamic on the downside of it. And cause, I mean, cause there's risks and things. And now I'm trying to have that conversation that you said we should have later, but yeah, you're right. You're right. We, it's, it, there, there's definitely a trade off there and you give up something in exchange for that. I, I would add that if there's anybody out there working a W2 job that thinks that they are not in an adversarial relationship with their company, not their, not necessarily the, their CEO, but if you think you are not in an adversarial relationship with the company, whose lawyer wrote your employment contract? That lawyer is not on your side. <laughs> Speaking of contract, th- I think there are like three things here that I, I tend to get confused. And one is the idea of what are my contractual obligations? And then what are the obligations that I put on myself because I'm in that situation. I have a kind of oversized sense of responsibility. And then what is loyalty and what's the difference between this oversized mm-hmm. sense of responsibility, responsibility that I put into thing, things and loyalty that is misplaced? That's, that is a fantastic question. And it was mirrored by a lot of the people that wrote back to me that were very angry about, you know, it sounds like you're, you're advocating being disloyal and being treacherous and, and, and doing these things. And other people wrote in and said, no, all these things that you're discu- discussing that I feel that they are my professional responsibility to pursue them. The short answer is that the responsibilities that you place on yourself are perfectly legitimate. They are part of your professional duty, they're part of your professional behavior, they're part of your professional character, and they're what they are what makes you you. And if you choose to give that to a company for money, great. That's, you know, as long as you're choosing to to, to do that, that is absolutely fine. The moment it becomes dangerous is when you cross this boundary of putting your trust in the corporation and you sacrifice your career. You basically at some point in the future, you're going to have an exit interview. And after that point in time, 
if you have not been investing in your career or in your professional network or in yourself or whatever, if you have sacrificed those investment things prior to that time, you have acted in a, an irresponsible fashion to yourself. Uh, does that make sense? It does. Thank you. I want to go back a little bit to talking about profit and value for a minute and mainly just point out that it connects to another point that Dave made. And that was that the, the corporation is kind of this, this fiction. It's not a person that can have loyalty toward you. And in a lot of cases, um, if they're public companies, the CEO has a fiduciary responsibility to basically maximize profits and, and increase the stock price. Yeah. And even if he, even if it's a privately held company, he still has a responsibility to the board to basically do the same thing. And so what you were saying about how the, the company or the CEO has the responsibility to get rid of you if you are not contributing to the company in a way that maximizes profits, that they have this responsibility to let you go. That that's absolutely the case, regardless of whether they're a nice person, regardless of whether or not they, they like you. And the reason is, is because ultimately they're set up to serve the, the good of the company. And that's what they have to do if they want to keep yeah. their job and in some cases not go to jail. Right. Now, now, right now, all of the libertarians and the constitutionalists that are listening to the podcast are pumping their fists in the air and going, yeah, but let me let me back that up a little bit or back off from that a little bit and say, there are CEOs out there who will keep somebody on when they're underperforming. And there are CEOs out there who will uh, invest money in healthcare, even though that's a needless expense, right? It doesn't, it, 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 it subtracts directly from the bottom line of the company. But these are CEOs who then go back to the board or back to the stockholders and say, uh, you know what, guys? Um, if we piss off all of the Ruby developers in the company, we won't be able to hire Ruby developers anymore, and that will ultimately cost us. And so there's, there's, it, is the phrase, not, is the phrase you're looking for enlightened self-interest? Enlightened, that's, that's a, yeah, sure, why not? That's, uh, that's a, that's straight out of the libertarian playbook, and I was trying to get away from that, but I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Whoa. so, so I guess, I guess the question becomes, if you can't have this loyalty or whatever you want to call it to this company because it's they're not going to reciprocate it then what do you owe to the company i think the 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 way that we look at our relationship with our com- with the companies we work for has changed over time and in fact it's really different in different places if you go to japan mm-hmm. people have a really different relationship with their companies that's uh, a great point yeah you know, my my understanding is people tend to they tend to join a company when they're fairly young and just stay working for that company for the rest of their life. And they have a really good pension plan and re- retirement and all that. It, is this about what other people have heard? Yeah. Katrina, uh, didn't you, uh, where you were previously, didn't they have a much higher, you know, binding between company and employees? Um, most companies in Norway have a two or three month, like, um, notice period if they're going to lay you off or you quit. Uh, so when I decided to leave that company, I still had to work there for three months. If now it, it's very hard to fire someone in Norway, very, very difficult. They have to have done something clearly illegal. You can't just let someone go with no, like it, unless they, like if someone is just mediocre, you can't get rid of them. Wow. <laughs> I've seen that happen here, mediocrity. too. 
So Adam Smith's Invisible Hand says that Norway's economy must be in the toilet as a result. How How is this not happening? I don't know how it's not happening. Norway is possibly one of the richest companies and uh, richest, richest countries in the world. They have a, a significant oil industry, which gives them a lot of money. They pour that money into um, health infrastructure and education. Uh, going to university in Norway costs perhaps, I don't know, $50 a semester in tuition. Wow. And you get the state provides loans, student loans, where you don't pay any interest during while you're studying. And then when your studies are over, you can either pay the interest, which is often around 5%. Um, and you can, you can either fix that or you can go with the fluctuations. Um, that loan does not, like, if you die, that loan does not then fall onto your, um, your family members. Wow. It, the state just eats that. The, the student loan program here works the same way, but the, our university program is clearly not as, uh, well supported as the Norwegian. Our, our student loan, we could do a whole show about it. Our student <laughs> loan program is absolutely freaking evil. It's yeah. the only loan that you cannot legally default on in the U.S. You can go to prison even if you file bankruptcy. That's true, okay, but okay, but if you die, it does going. go away anyway. Yeah, let's put let's put a pin yeah. on that and be done. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So so getting back to to where I was going with this uh, digression is that uh, the 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 relationship you have with your company isn't isn't universal. It's, it changes over time and space. That and I think that even uh, here in America, where I think most of our listeners are. Um, the the concept of that relationship has has evolved over time and you, you you know you used to be able to be a company man and you'd just go work for you know a company and you'd you know work there until they gave you your gold watch and a pension and then you'd go off to your retirement and i think that in those cases have you know if you're in a lifelong employment relationship with a with a company having loyalty makes sense because yeah. the, you know that's your career that you're taking care of but but Dave, your point about take care of your career first—that's I mean, a—that's an amazingly important thing. And I've talked yeah. to uh, younger people who I've been mentoring about this, and they they feel really bad that they've gotten a better yes. job offer and they need to quit their job and go you know work on this m- new amazing job. And they're yeah. like, well, I don't I don't want to leave my boss in the lurch. I don't want to you know you know I you know, it's like I don't want to be a bad person to them. And yeah. it, you know, it's great to have those those feelings about yeah. your your company and your boss. But I but what I loved about your your blog post, Dave, was that it really laid it out analytically that uh, that kind of loyalty and putting your company's interests ahead of your own interests is really a form of insanity. Yeah, it's it's just it, it's there's no way that putting your company's interests ahead of your own is going to work out well for you in the long run. Right. Right. right, and and consider how many times have you have you read the statement, "We were doing really well until Susan left, and then the company fell apart." Right, not once, <laughs> <laughs> because Susan on honestly was pretty lackluster. Um, no, but you're but you're right, right? I mean, the the company is a machine, theoretically, metaphorically, and when somebody leaves. They, that part falls off the machine. They replace the part and they move on. Yeah, um, com- companies are engineered to be able to replace their parts. That's why yeah. they treat us as replaceable parts. Yes, 
Yeah. So an interesting historical thing that I did not know, but I learned as through the Reddit comments on this blog post and and that sort of thing is that you're absolutely right, Josh, about this evolving over time. It turns out that the boomers, uh, the boomer generation, people, you know, the like the GI babies born in the like the ni- 1940s, their job for life people. They are people who or rather the the, the greatest generation, World War One. They are job for life people. My, my father in law got out of the army, went to work at one company, worked there until he was 65 and quit and has a fantastic pension, has a gold watch and all that stuff. And I changed jobs three times while I was dating his daughter and it terrified him. It turns out that the boomers looked back at the greatest generation and said, yes, I want that. I want a job for life. I want to be groomed. I want to be, you know, kept. I want to be taken care of. I want to not have to worry about my career. And then kind of the, the seventies, and the 80s happened, right? The steel crisis in the United States and then the 80s, just the, the generation of greed or the era of greed sort of happened and job for life kind of disintegrated. And so Generation X were children at that time and we, and I'm Gen X and I watched my parents who were boomers. I watched them lose their job for life. They, and, and they just kind of were just blinking in the sun, like what just happened to me? And I watched it happen. And now the generation behind us, Generation Y, they've never heard of Job for Life. It is a unicorn. It's a mythical creature to them. And what is really astonishing to me is when I sit people down and say, okay, Job for Life really was a thing because I watched it die. I know it was a real thing, but you know, there, there used to be unicorns, but they are now extinct. And I, you know, I watched them die. And it's like what you said, Josh, the really weird thing is that we have passed on the dysfunctions of job for life, but we haven't passed on the benefits of job for life. And so people go into a job thinking, oh, this place will take care of me forever, except that I'm an IT worker. I'll be lucky to make 18 months. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess this leads to the next question. What are you supposed to do? So I finally... Uh, wrote a follow-up called Loyalty and Trust um, in which I went through the definitions of loyalty and trust and vulnerability. And loyalty just means giving or showing firm, constant support or allegiance to a person or institution. And that's good loyalty. You should do that. People who listen to this podcast have heard Chuck and I complain about a past client that was kind of a rough gig for us. Uh, and it was a rough gig and it was kind of a rough time, but we've never named names. We've never kicked trash on them. I've, I've, you know, Chuck and I have quietly gone off and, you know, and, you know, dished dirt back and forth to each other, you know, about it. But that's because we both knew all the dirt, right? I still show allegiance to my past clients by not kicking their trash, even if I didn't have a good time working for them. And that's okay. That's enlightened self-interest. If a new client hears me, uh, kicking, you know, you know, dishing dirt on past clients, they know that someday they're going to be a past client of mine and they don't want that. So no, so I don't, I don't, even if I'm unhappy with them, I won't, uh, you know, I, I, I won't be disloyal to them. Obvious things. If, uh, I think, uh, Katrina or Josh, one of you asked, so if you are working for a company, what should you do loyalty wise? And the answer is you should do your job. You should be professionally ethical. If you can see something is coming down the pipe that is going to destroy the company, you have an obligation to let your manager know that you can see this coming. As you as an engineer, if you're doing some kind of database search and they're saying, in order to survive scaling, we have to shard the database, 
but you know that there's no way to search across multiple shards without completely reinventing the infrastructure, you have an obligation to let your manager know that your that our scaling strategy isn't going to work. We're going to go bankrupt if we do this. You have an ethical obligation to not sit on your butt and watch the clock. You have an ethical obligation to not steal uh, from the company, not embezzle, not you know, not do the things that your CEO is probably doing. <laughs> and, and those are the things that that compromise um, lawyer that com- com- excuse me that comprise loyalty, not compromise things that comprise loyalty, sacrificing your own career, like not going after that CNA or, well, a CNA is a really old certification, but not going after, you know, uh, the, you know, a certification in your field. If your company, a lot of companies don't want to pay for you to get certified because then you're going to want more money and you're going to get that knowledge anyway. Well, screw that. Go get the certification. You, you should do that. If your company won't help you do it, go do it on your own dime. That's where your loyalty to your own career and your company's demands for loyalty fall in conflict. And when they come in conflict, you should show loyalty to yourself first. There's also, I think, I I, want to say something about burning bridges. And Dave, Mm -hmm. what you were saying about how not being disloyal to past clients is important. And I I agree with that fully. And, you know, past clients, past employers, it's it's a good idea to to stay on good terms with them. Yeah. You know, the... but then there's, there's also the, um, so when you leave a company, you're, you know, at the very least, you're pro, it's most likely that you're going to, um, bruise some feelings. And sometimes you're going to have to burn a bridge to leave. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's situations that you get in where it's really a tough choice and you say, okay, I'm the key person on this project. And if I leave at the very least, it's going to delay the project by some number of weeks, if not months. Yeah. Uh, you know, because, you know, because of all of my perfect experience or, you know, knowledge silo or what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but then you have this other awesome opportunity coming where you just really don't want to pass it up. It's, you know, it's going to mean more money, more interesting work, working with people who you can learn from, you know, just yeah. all that great stuff. And you're going to have to make that choice. Yeah. And. You know, that's what, what your first article was about was like, okay, you know, don't, you know, if you're going to have to make that choice, make the choice in your own benefit, not, not yeah. worrying about the companies. And you, and my point is that you just have to at some point suck it up and be willing to burn a bridge. Yeah. And know that yeah. you're never going to be able to go back to that company and work there again, or maybe yeah. you'll lose a friend or two. Um, yeah. so it's, it, it, those are not easy decisions to make, but it's like for me, you got to take care of yourself because you know the company is not going to take care of you in the long I, run. I can give yeah. you an example of this. I worked for a company out here. I'm not going to name the company, but uh, yeah, I mean, I I was basically the most experienced developer there, and the rest of the guys, with maybe one exception, were all just there to collect a paycheck. the The CEO was toxic, and so eventually, I tried to leave, and you know, I I tried to give him notice. I did all the things I could to make it as, you know, as seamless as possible. The new company that I was going to go work for, incidentally, was the company I worked with Dave at. You know, they wanted me right away. So I was, I was actually trying to work things out so I could work for them part time to make the transition smooth. And basically what I got was an attempt to give me a guilt trip. Um, I got yelled at and eventually I was told that, uh, you know, I would never work for them or anyone else that they knew ever again. Yeah. And, Ultimately, I mean, there was nothing I could do, but in, in order for me to move ahead with my career and move ahead to a place that was positive and, and really, 
uh, reinforce the things that I valued in my career, I had to leave that company. And there was just no way to do it without burning that bridge. Yeah. There's uh, another... Chuck, do you have any regrets about that? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So an interesting... One of the dysfunctions that got passed down from the Job for Life syndrome is that there is this phobia of being a job hopper. And um, it's a completely unfounded phobia. In the 1960s, it, w- it was death to your career, right? Somebody who couldn't hold down a job was somebody who was problematic. Now, in the in the noughties and the teens, if you're working in IT, it's it's not uncommon to look at somebody's you know job history in the 21st century and go, okay, 13 years and you've had seven jobs. Yeah, that seems about right. But there are people out there genuinely afraid of being seen as a job hopper uh, because that means that you know, well, we hire you. We want you to stick around, but you don't have a history of sticking around. And why is that? The other thing that I would point out is that sometimes you do have to burn a bridge. And this is another one of those. It's You've heard me say a lot that I think everything is a trade-off. There is a trade-off to burning a bridge. And sometimes you can burn a bridge spectacularly. Like, like sometimes, like if your CEO is stealing or is, you know, there's a really common thing out here in Utah where employers will just, not pay their employees. The, 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 this is completely against the law, by the way. But they'll just say, you know what? We're, we're bad on cash flow. Payroll's going to be a couple of weeks late, but we need you to keep working. Uh, this happened a lot in the mid-2000s, like 2005, 2006. I knew a bunch of people at multiple companies that were having paychecks come later and later and later and later. And I was just like pulling my hair out going, why are you doing, you know, why are you still there? You know, get out, go. Because every single one of them folded and left left employees with six or 12 weeks of back pay unpaid. And there was a company that tried to do this to me and to my team. And uh, I burned a bridge. I they, they stood up and said, we can't afford the cash flow. And I, I actually stood up in the meeting and I said, that's against the law. And if you have people working in this building tomorrow morning, you had better have paychecks or I am going to the Labor Commission. And I understand that I have just fired myself for saying this, and that's fine. But if you're going to, so if you're going to burn a bridge, you know, if you're going to stab somebody, stab them right in the chest and look them in the eye when you do it. That company, I will never work for them again. I will never work for anybody they know ever again. And I'm kind of okay with that. The thing about burning a bridge is that you get one for free in your career. If you are principled about it, you can burn a bridge, do it big, do it loud, you know, go big with it. But make sure you've got your principles right. You can do that once. If you do it twice, people start to say, well, maybe you're the common element here. Um, but if you do it once, people will go, okay, you know what? That really was a bad situation, and we don't have to worry about that. Yeah. So uh, a couple of us have mentioned uh, working for spectacularly bad bosses or spectacularly bad companies. Yeah. And yeah. It, uh, yeah, so I mean, we've all, I've worked for some really great for some really great places for some really good managers uh, and had a really great time at those jobs. And I've Mm -hmm. also worked for job, you know, for places where it just really sucked, you know, bad manager, bad man, you know, management structure, et cetera. And, you know, there's a big difference. So is, what do you think about like, you know, does that affect how much loyalty you have for a company or how much you, or, or, you know, how you interact with them or think about them? So, the two Stevens that wrote Freakonomics, they they said that five percent of the population are incorrigible. No matter how much you tempt them, and no matter how much you guarantee 
that they will not get caught. They will not break a rule. And no matter how, how little the punishment will be. 3% of the population are incorrigible. No matter how likely it is they'll be caught, no matter how bad the punishment is, they will still break a rule. The remaining 92% of the population have a price. And it is important to know what your price is. Right? Calvin and Hobbes, right? Everyone has a price. Mine is 75 cents. And there are jobs where the person immediately over me was so toxic that I had to leave in order to protect my sanity. I basically went to him and said, the, the amount of money I'm getting for this job isn't worth working for you. I'm sorry. I have to go. I didn't say it like that. I said it a lot more nicely. But certainly, I'm happier when the job is better. But the rule that I use, uh, especially as a contractor, is that I, I'm a mercenary. And that means that my sword is for hire. And if I take Caesar's coin, Caesar owns my sword for the period of time that, it, that, that it's being rented. And that means that if, if I don't like my boss, if I don't like my teammates, if I don't like the project I'm on, it doesn't matter. If, if I'm cashing that paycheck, I need to do the work. I need to get in and get it done. And I need to help that company achieve its mission regardless of the other people um, that I'm working with. I probably won't last a long time at that company because I personally derive a great deal of happiness and satisfaction from having friends at work and from having socialization at the office. But it, I don't think it affects the core uh, responsibility. And, and the reason I, I don't think it affects it is because responsibility and work ethic comes from inside me and not from anybody else at my job. So I can be lazy or I can be a hard worker, but that's my choice. And it doesn't matter if I'm working for somebody who's, you know, awesome, or if I'm working for somebody who's crazy, there's still a job to do. And if I'm cashing that paycheck, I have to do it. Does, does that answer the question? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So I, I actually have a case where I burned a bridge, uh, with a good boss <laughs> in that, um, you know, they, uh, they were a great person, one of, one of my favorites that I've ever worked with, and um, uh, it was really good. Uh, and they wanted me to basically uh, commit and, and come and, and work with them forever, you know, uh, kind of thing, and, and do that. And uh, just with th- other things I had going on and stuff like that, I didn't feel that was the right uh, you know, move for me at that time, basically. Uh, and so I said no, uh, but that was kind of a, you know, relationship rending thing, uh, that, that I didn't feel that same thing that they felt toward me, uh, is thing. So yeah, I, I don't think it necessarily has to be like a, a scenario where abuse is being applied or anything like that. It's just a case of, our goals don't line up right now or something like yeah. that. Also, yeah, I'm, I, a little, I'm a little slow today because I'm hugely jet lagged, but I believe this concept Dave's been talking about, uh, job for life stuff. I think, um, there's this generational theory, which kind of covers what David's been calling job for life. And mm-hmm. that particular generation in this theory is the prophets. Uh, and then Gen X that came after is the, the nomads. And anyways, the idea is that there's these, uh, uh, generations that keep cycling through and one naturally leads to the one that comes after and that we wrap mm-hmm. around and, and, and change based on this. So you might read it. It's, it's interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think it's, 
it's very very true. There's a a blog post. I'll try and find it and and and, and bring it up in the pics. But it talks about why why is Generation Y and Generation Z why why are they so unhappy? And the reason why is because they've been told that they're special and that the world owes them stuff, or at least Gen X was told that, and now Generation Z or Generation Y was told that. Now Generation Z is even more amped up on that. That they they, th- they believe that they are special amongst all of the other special people, and then reality shows up and they find out that they're not special, and uh, it makes them very very unhappy to have that cognitive dissonance. I've been reading that back and forth, so. I- it will be interesting to see where that goes. Go ahead, Ofti. I was just going to say, I think the experience of the, the freelancers here is really useful. And for myself, I kind of wish that I had done some freelance work earlier. I, I feel like everyone should do a little bit of freelance. And, you know, you don't have to f- stick with it. But if you're in software, you should do a little bit of freelance. And a little and, bit of company you know. work, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I think the, the, what the, the freelance gives you a better I, th- I think it gives you a better idea of how the world is actually working and and how the the what the the work relationship really is because i mean the thing is no matter whether you're you know quote full time or freelance i mean you're negotiating time for money you know you're nego- negotiating that you will give your services to some entity in return for money and that's that's yeah. really all you're doing Yep. You know, and that's very clear when you're a freelancer or a consultant, whatever you want to call it. But it gets sort of wrapped up in all this cultural baggage, which is what we've just been been talking about when you're doing it with for a full time position at a company. But yeah. it's really the same negotiation. And it's interesting how much how similar it really can be. You know, a lot of people think of going, you know, getting a job as this sort of sign or don't scenario. You know, the it's it's like a sort of job at, at, you know, Big Co is this commodity thing. And they don't even realize that even just getting a job at some Big Co, you actually have a lot of leeway in how you can negotiate your contract. You know, mm-hmm. you can negotiate that they don't own the thoughts in your head when you go home and, and work on open source in your, in your spare time. A lot of people don't mm-hmm. think to negotiate that, but you can do it. One of the, the, the first Rails job I had, I negotiated that, that, uh, after an, ish, an initial period, I would have, um, an increasing amount of work from home time. So, you know, it's, it's the same deal. You're negotiating your, your work for their money. And the more you can view it that way, the more that you understand that you are a more or less sovereign individual who is making a choice to, to make a deal with this company. I think the better you'll, you are set to be, you know, to, to manage your career effectively rather than, you know, thinking of yourself as sort of a supplicant or something. Uh, to these to these companies, mm-hmm. I, so I have I have a question about the the company's perspective on loyalty, and I, I remember uh, when I was working at Apple years ago, there was some round of layoffs, and Michael Spindler had some all hands meeting, and we were all gathered there, and uh, was at the Flint Center at De Anza College, and the company CEO or you know the the CEO and the execs are up there and they're talking about something about the the difficulty of the layoff process and you know you know Spindler says something about you know Apple's not just an ordinary company worth we're, we're like a family here and uh. and people in the audience got really pissed off and started <laughs> yelling at him yeah at, be, because you don't lay off family members. You can't lay off as much as we'd like. Sometimes you can't lay <laughs> off people from your family. Uh, yeah. They, 
I, so, but it, I've thought about that interaction for, for many years. And I, I really wonder if the people who run companies like Apple or, you know, who knows what, if they really think of the company as something like a family or something that the people who work there owe them some kind of loyalty, you know, beyond just the, you know, work for hire aspect of it. My experience is absolutely yes. They, the, they do think that they are that they, owed loyalty. That they, that they are owed, um, uh, more than loyalty. That, that, that they're owed, uh, especially with the, the W2 employees, right? I mean, when you've got an hourly employee, you're paying every hour that this guy's working on something. So you, you, you send messages to them like, finish it quick. But when you've got somebody whose salary, who's overtime exempt, you don't say that to them anymore. You say, I expect you to do whatever it takes to get it done. Work late, work weekends, I don't care. Just get it done. And I, I've seen enough companies that act like a family and, and in a, in a dysfunctional way that like, like an abusive family that I actually used the phrase with, with a coworker once I was, I was working hourly as a consultant at a company and I had said something pretty outrageous in a meeting. I'd, I'd said something that like, like everyone just kind of went <gasps> when I said it and somebody later, one of the W2 employees says, I can't believe you said that in the meeting. And, and I said, well, what what this other person said was BS. And he's like, I know, but I still can't believe you said that. And I said, here here's the difference between you and me. You believe that you're part of a family. I am not. I am a mercenary. And the advantage to not being a member of the family is I don't have to pretend not to see it when daddy hits mommy. And it's, it's a pretty edgy metaphor. But in this particular case, it, it made that particular employee go, Holy crap, you're exactly right. Cause that's exactly what was happening was there was not just a family structure, but a, a dysfunctional family structure and abuse was being handed out pretty cavalierly. And, and that's unacceptable. That's that, that, even if you don't take care of your career, that's, that's not the kind of loyalty you should be giving to your company. That's giving vulnerability to your company and you should never do that. Okay. What, what about loyalty to your coworkers and peers? So I, yeah, I, I'm actually really glad you brought that up because I do really well on the managing loyalty to the company aspect. I think I understand that correctly and intuitively and I, I, I can make the right judgments there. I totally fall down and die of loyalty to my coworkers. Like I, I totally feel like I'm in this team and I'm struggling with them and then, and then we get into some horrible scenario. And like, I can't see myself getting out of that because I wouldn't do that to my team. Yeah. Whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've had, I've had, uh, like friends I've mentoring about career stuff where they'll say, Oh, you know, I want to, I want to leave and go get this other job, but I don't want, you know, I love my team and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to leave them having to deal with all of my work, that kind of thing. Yeah. I've, I've kind of gone through that too, but I, I typically don't take it to that extreme. So I, I would, I mean, I've, I've worked with people that I would, you know, I would do whatever it took for them personally. And I would do whatever it took to a certain degree professionally. Um, and I think it's healthy to have that loyalty to those people because, you know, you, you kind of build a network, you get to know people. Uh, by the way, I hate the term network. You build relationships with these people that mean something. And, uh, it, it, it's important, but at the same time, you know, at a certain point, you're hurting yourself too much. And yeah. I, I don't know what the right answer is because I think we all want to please other people and, and be there for them. But, uh, yeah, you still have to kind of keep perspective there. 
I, I just want to point out that I think James and Chuck have, have hit it right on the head. One of the follow-up posts I wrote was called Loyalty and Trust. And there's a, if you watch the Brene Brown videos that we picked several episodes back about vulnerability, there's a cycle of loyalty and trust. I, I show, I, sh- I give you trust or no, I, I, I show loyalty to you and you come to trust me. And so you show me a little bit of vulnerability. And so I then show you more loyalty and I, I respect that vulnerability and you trust me more. And, and, and this, this forms a cycle. It's a virtuous cycle. This is called building a friendship. This is increasing the amount of trust and vulnerability that you're willing to share. And eventually you reach a point where you're willing to share your dreams and your aspirations with your coworkers because they're not just your team anymore. They're now they're your friends. And this is no longer a business arrangement. This is actually a friendship. One of the, the, the top, uh, Marcus Buckingham said that one of the top 10 things determining job happiness is can you honestly say that you have a best friend at work? And if you're a long timer, if you're working W2 somewhere, there's probably somebody that you're really good friends with at work because that person is your go-to person for vulnerability and social support. And as a team, in, in the original loyalty and layoffs post, I basically said you should not be loyal to, to a team. And what I meant was the organization, the, the, the structural org chart of the team. If we replaced all the people with, with, you know, idiotic nephews that were all, you know, hired for nepotism reasons rather than skill, you would not have any more friends left on this team and you shouldn't have loyalty to that organizational structure. But to the people on those teams, as you make friends and build trust and share vulnerability, absolutely. James, I wouldn't say you fall down on this. I would say you stand tall on it, that you, that, that you are, um, you are doing it exactly right. And the, the, the key point of this is that these are genuinely conflicts of interest. Because now you've got this group of friends that you don't want to let down, but you've also got this company that is screwing up and needs to be, you know, pushed back on and said, no, I will not do this. And that is a conflict of interest and you have to weigh them against each other because, and, and, and when, when it comes time for you to act against the company in your own best interest, that group of your friends is going to suffer, uh, for the loss of you. And you have to weigh that. You have to consider that as part of, uh, as, as part of the entire mixture when you make that choice. I, I want to point out though, Dave, that you did kind of give us a little bit of a formula for that when you told us about the time where you, uh, spoke out and, uh, you know, and then the, the employee came to you and talked to you. And, and the reason yeah. is, is because if you do have loyalty to those people and you recognize dysfunction in the organization itself, it's totally okay to look at them and say, you know, I don't want to leave you in a lurch, but, this is unhealthy and you shouldn't enable it either. Yeah. Has anyone read um, Ursula Le Guin's uh, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas? Nope. nope. Oh, is, is Omelas the one where they have to kill a kid? Okay. I have. Yes. Okay. Well, 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 not, not, not kill, but. Spoiler toy. alert. It's, sorry. <laughs> well, it's, it doesn't spoil it. It's, it, you know, it's a, it's a fable a modern fable by Ursula Le Guin. And she talks about, it's basically the fundamental ethical conundrum that, you know, does the good of the many outweigh the good of the few and, or the one. But it, but the, um, you know, the, the point of the story is that there are people who, when faced with this untenable ethical conundrum, walk away from it. They're not um, willing to enjoy the benefits of a system that is based on the suffering of someone else. And I, I, I bring this up because these uh, loyalty situations, especially with coworkers and, and friends who you work with, uh, so that there, 
like I've been in situations where I've watched friends of mine get laid off and thought, Oh, whoa, you know, you know, thank heavens. It's not me. You know, I didn't, I didn't lose my job and you feel bad for the people who leave and you think maybe there's something unfair about the way that the layoffs were done. And, Oh, well, you know, why did she get laid off? You know, she's much, you know, she's contributed much more than I have. You know, why does she lose her job and I keep mine? And I have been in situations where I've been faced with that, with not exactly that conundrum, but very similar ones of feeling like it, something that the company's doing that sucks is pitting me against my coworkers in terrible ways. Yeah. And, you know, you know, like, Oh, am I going to get the raise? You know, I'm now competing with my coworkers for raises because there's a limited, you know, salary pool for raises. And I don't know. I've had a long career, so it's hard for me to remember everything that's happened in my career. But there have been times where I've been faced with that sort of, you know, am I going to walk away from Omalas kind of thing? Uh And I can't say that I've ever walked away from a job just because I didn't like the way the job was treating other people. But, but I've definitely been in situations where I've, where I've left a group in a company and, you know, found, you know, gone to another position in the company because I didn't like the way the manager ran things or the way the people on the team were being treated. And it wasn't about how I was getting treated. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious if that's like, D- Dave, if that's something on your radar or if that's, you know, something you've thought about. Absolutely. Um, I haven't read ones who walk away from Omelas, but I watched The Hunger Games, which is basically the same thing, right? I don't know. I haven't seen it. <laughs> they're not, they're not, they're not the same at all. They're not the same at all. Um, anyway, um, <clears throat> yes, this is absolutely on my radar. One of the, the early, one of the, the first kind of managerial positions I had, I was the director of technology at, uh, a, a rafting company, uh, like whitewater high adventure reservation. We were writing software to do these reservations. And I'm kind of of the opinion that management's job is to be, a poop umbrella, right? That, that if, you know, the, 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 the VP should never yell at an engineer. The VP should yell at the director and the director should yell at the team lead and the team lead should yell at the engineers if it's needed. But the VP should never come down from the tower and yell at the engineers because there's no, there's, there's such a disparity of power there that it's, it, it's devastating that when a, when a VP says, you know, I think maybe we should look into this technology, the employees will view this as a mandate, you know, and the, and the VP is just running his mouth. He's, he's just saying, eh, you know, we could maybe do it this way, but, but the disparity of power is so, you know, your wish is my command kind of thing because the disparity is so high. And I resigned in protest because the investor was basically the VP of the company and he came to me and said, we need to fix this problem. And I said, okay, let me, let me deal with the team. You're not allowed to talk to the team about this. And he took umbrage at this. He's, he's like, you can't tell me what I can and cannot do. And so he came in and he sat down with the dev team and he ripped them a new one. And I couldn't do a thing about it. Like I wanted to stand up for them. I, I stepped in several times and got slapped down in front of, in front of the team for stepping up to him. And he had laid down the law. He'd said his piece. He'd made everything exactly the way he needed to be. And then he stormed out. And by the time he got back to his office, which was half an hour's drive away, my resignation was in his email box. I basically said, you know, I'm, I'm done. You know, I, I have one job here and it's to protect these people from you. And if you won't let me do my job, then I'm not going to do my job. And I was furious about this. 
And he, he calmed down and he took me to lunch and said, is there anything I can do to convince you to stay? And I said, I honestly don't know because honestly, I'm still pretty pissed off at you. Here's where this becomes, this is all backstory and I apologize for taking so much time on this, but what I then did, and this is a, a very careful walking the line between loyalty to a company and uh, encouraging people to be loyal to themselves and not being disloyal to the company. I then took my entire team out to lunch. We got out of the building and I sat everybody down and I told them, look, guys, I've resigned this meeting. You know, my job is to protect you from that meeting and I'm not allowed to do this. So I am resigning in protest. I'm, I'm, I'm committing ritual suicide career wise in protest and in the hopes that it will make our boss uh, see that his actions have consequences as a loyal team member. I, you know, loyal to this company. I have to tell all of you that, and I, I mean this sincerely. I hope you stay with the company and I hope you have good, solid careers here. And I hope that my resigning has a positive effect on all of you. That said, I encourage all of you to build your own skills and build up the independence you need to be able to quit because they were, they were all fresh out of college and quitting in anger was so far off of their radar, so far out of their ability to do that they couldn't. They were trapped at that company because they were terrified of the thought of going alone. And so I kind of was walking away from Omelas, but I was also, before I left, telling each of the ones I was leaving behind, hopefully there will be a day when you can leave this company behind or you can choose to stay. Whether, you know, but it can be a choice on your own terms rather than staying because you're too terrified to leave. And, and that was kind of the split for me. There are people who genuinely are afraid to leave a company and they're stuck. And yeah. so I've been, I've been having to confront this, uh, a lot myself recently it, in, you know, and, and acknowledge my privilege as, you know, someone who can get a job at pretty much the drop of a hat if I want yeah. to. That, yeah. Yeah, and walking away from a job isn't actually a very difficult thing for me to do these days. Mm-hmm. If I if I if I walk away from a job, I'm pretty confident that I can get a new job that's probably better than the old job if I really try hard. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, in a number of days, and I and I'm incredibly fortunate to be in that situation. You know, I've you know I've done some hard work in my career to get to that point, but I acknowledge that 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 it's I'm in a very privileged position, and that yeah. And, and being here isn't something that's entirely due to me. It's, mm-hmm. you know, largely due to, you know, circumstances of, of upbringing and, you know, luck and timing yeah. as much as well, anything else. So, but so it's like, I feel a little, a little, um, bad when I talk to, when I'm talking about, Oh, geez, you know, follow your bliss and don't work mm-hmm. from, don't make employment decisions based on how much money you'll be getting. Make on, you know, make, make the decision based on, Oh, I'll be working with a great team or I'll be able to learn something or it, it sometimes people are just trying to, to get by. And I, and I yeah. know that, I, that, you know, not a lot of people can make choices like that. Josh, yeah, we, we definitely are having first world problems. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I really want to just ask because I feel like we're all kind of in this position where we, we feel like if we really needed to go get a job, we could find one. And I'm, I'm curious, what is it about our situation that allows us to do that? And, and mainly, I guess the question is, is what, what assets or what skills or what abilities should people be working on that allow them to have that same freedom? I have a lot of privileges as well. Uh, some of them lifelong. Some of them, you know, c- came along later. Uh, as a result of working hard, but 
on the other hand, I've also had, I've had a whole family, including kids to take care of since I was 20. And I've had basically no, I've basically had no financial reserves for most of my working life. Um, I had some early on and they went away. So I'm a little bit familiar with, you know, the, the that, you know, yes, now I am a, in a position where, where I'm not too worried about that kind of thing because, you know, I, I could pretty much pretty easily get a job at a lot of places, but I'm very familiar with that, you know, that sensation of if I lose this job, what am I going to do? And many years ago, I did a lot of deep thinking about this, a lot of very stressed thinking about this because it was a very immediate concern. And I mean, my conclusion, my overall conclusion that sort of guided my philosophy since then was that money is important. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a good idea to, to have that, that buffer that people talk about, you know, and, you know, the, the savings buffer and stuff like that. But money in this society can also go away really, really fast. Yes. And, and it's, it is a truly immense, large, you know, immense amount of money that can actually give you a, a safety net. And a lot of us don't even, you know, don't even have the, the wherewithal to build that kind of thing up. And, and, and the conclusion I came to is that the most important, uh, investment you can make is connections. Uh, yes. and so I kind of set about my, you know, the guiding light of my career became not, uh, where can I make more money, but how can I make more connections? And I mean, there have been some other things along the way as well, some sort of, uh, lesser values. There's been the value of always have something, always have something of my own that I'm working on, you know, have something that rather than, than just scrounging for work when I suddenly lose a job, have something that, that I think can make some money that I can work on during that period and treat that period as the universe telling me to work on my own stuff for a little while. You know, that's, that's been important too. But the very, you know, the, the biggest philosophical guiding light has been do what I need to do to build connections. You know, that's whether that involves participating in local users groups, uh, participating in conferences, uh, social networking, email, just emailing people, you know, saying, I really like that thing you did. Yeah. And per, of course, pers participating in open source, something I wish I, I, I still wish I did more of, but, but, um, that is, you know, and, and it's, it's not just industry either. It's also, you know, your local community, whether it's, it's, you know, something you have through a church or a synagogue or something like that, or, or just your, your circle of friends or something like that. But really the only, to my mind, the only safety net that matters, the only safety net that's going to see me through to, to hopefully the end of my days is going to be, you know, the one that exists because I am known, because people know me, because people hopefully like me, um, yeah. and care about me. And that's, that is what you need to work on. I vowed in 2009 that I would never, uh, write another resume. And I broke that promise in 2010. I got a job. And then after hiring on, HR came to me and said, we have to have a copy of your resume for our file. And I just kind of laughed at them and I said, okay, fine. And I gave them a resume for two, from 2007. And I wrote at the bottom of the, of it saying, I do not attest that this is complete and accurate to my best knowledge. It is accurate to my knowledge, but it is not complete. Everything, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to cut to the chase and say, thank you, Abdi. You have made the most important point of the episode, which is if you are in a job, and you wish you could get out, but you don't know that you trust your career, build, I need a better word for it. I wrote a follow-up post called Loyalty and Your Professional Network, and the post fell completely flat. And I think it's because it has the word network in the title. 
that's a very 80s term. Community? Um, community, yeah, is, is a good word. I think community and network are a little bit different, but maybe I'm wrong. But absolutely, that is the single most important thing that you can do to increase your power of control over your own career. The only, the only thing I would add to it is if you're just starting out, here's the bad news. You're going to have to do more than just your job. You you have to do your job and then you have to do more. You have to invest yes. in community. You have mm-hmm. to invest in your career. And it is I, exhausting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I will, yes. I, I will share my personal secret for how to do that effectively. Please do things that make other people feel awesome. Nice. Yeah. That, you know, yeah. It, it, you know, I, I've, I've watched friends, friends do this recently and some people just have seem to have a natural ability of it. I worked really hard at this. I figured out, uh, you know, a while back that, that the things that gave me the most juice in the professional networks were the things that I did that helped other people. And, you know, so when I was writing my blog, I was writing, you know, writing this blog, my blog got really popular and it was all about providing information that made people, that made it easier for people to learn how to program in, you know, Rails and Ruby. And, you know, then I did things like organize meetups and put on conferences and now I'm doing this podcast and it's not all self-serving like it might sound here, but, a, but a big part of that is I'm doing stuff that I know is a contribution to other people. And that's mm-hmm. really, that's really the juice in this professional networking. I don't think that professional networking where you like go to a quote networking event and everybody's wearing <laughs> name, t- name tags and yeah. you just sort of chat among yourselves over cocktails and finger food. Um, mm-hmm. it, that's not networking. That's socializing. Or you can, you can do networking there, but as a whole, that's a very low impedance, uh, right. activity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the thing, the thing that has like two or three uh, more, greater orders of magnitude effectiveness is seeing what it is that helps other people in your, in your community yeah. and doing that stuff. So, you know, working on meetups, uh, you know, mentoring people, uh, doing rails bridge, uh, training, you know, what have you. It's, you know, get out there and do stuff that contribute, that, that helps other people and, and do it in a completely generous way. Just like, you know, go out there and do stuff that helps people. And eventually that will, you know, pay off in the long run. It does. And it, it, it earns interest in a, in a way that's very similar to making financial investments because yes. you will, you know, those people that, that, that random person that you help now, that person who's just getting started or something, you know, that may be the person who five years from now, 10 years from now is a VP and, and thinks of you. So, you know, and this is, you, you can look at this in a very calculating way, but you can also look at this as basically we're telling you to be a, um, a healthy, a healthy human being with a community. And, you know, that, that pays off. And and I I would, go ahead. I was just going to say, don't do it because you want it to pay off. Do it just to invest in other people because it's a, a fantastically human thing to do. Well, it, yeah, and it, also, and I, I'm sorry, it, it also makes like doing what you're doing a heck of a lot more fun. Yeah. yeah. Now, I, I know a lot of you are probably thinking, but I'm an introvert. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I am too. And it's, it's rough. I, that's all I can tell you. It's rough. It's, it's hard. Um, a lot of these things will, will take it out of you in a way that even writing code doesn't. Yeah. And all I can tell you is that it's, it's truly worth it. And there are hacks. There are hacks that you can do to to greatly leverage things without a, a massive cost to your introversion uh, reserves. Uh, do tell, please. Uh, <laughs> oh boy, that's it's a whole other whole other episode. The, the, the short version is 
what Avdi said. Just do do things nice for other people. Or I'm sorry, what Josh said. Do things for other people. Jamie Zawinski uh, famously wrote, uh, stop thinking about how this software is going to leverage your synergies. Start thinking about how is this software going to get somebody laid? <laughs> A really simple hack is if you're job hunting, don't ask somebody who's hiring because you're just some schlub who's asking for a job. Ask somebody, hey, who's working with Postgres? Who's, who's working with, with PostGIS? Who's working with, you know, GeoSearch? Who's doing that? Because that, that's a very unloaded question. That's just casual chit chat. And you will get 10, 10 answers out of somebody. And those are great leads that you can then follow up. You can call somebody and say, Hey, I hear you guys are working with PostGIS. What are you doing? And they say, Oh, well, we're doing this and this and this. And now you're talking about what they're doing. And it hasn't even been brought up yet that you're unemployed and you're looking or that you're, you're underemployed or that you hate your job and you're looking to get out or whatever. There are, that's kind of what I mean by hacks is don't try to tackle the problem, the emotional problem of, oh my gosh, I have to get a job right away. Don't tackle it head on. Tackle it indirectly and just, just talk with people. It's really stupid, but there is a, a book called How to Be More Interesting. Um, and do you know what the, the take home on how to be more interesting is? It's I have a guess. Question. What's your guess? It, my guess is be interested. Yes. 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 Listening to other people is, there's a quote to this and I can't get, the, I don't remember the exact quote, but hearing another person is indistinguishable from love. Be, being heard is indistinguishable from being loved. Yeah, and at, at if, many levels. Yes, at many, many levels. And so listen to people. And so the hacks for introverts are find a series of innocuous questions. And if you're networking for a career, just find questions that are in your current job. Like I found a bug in the PG search gem yesterday and I'm going to go talk to Pivotal Labs and say, Hey, do you know about this bug? And, you know, you know, can, can I do anything to help fix it or is it out of scope or whatever? But I'm at least going to talk to somebody and somebody will know who I am as a result. And, and, and that'll be great. And maybe that will someday turn into, you know, something positive for me. Uh, one of my, my personal goals five years ago was to work at Pivotal Labs. I may have taken a different route and that may be behind me now, but I, just, I wouldn't mind working with them, but I don't know anybody there. I know a bunch of X pivots, but I don't, you know, I'm rambling. I'm sorry. But the, <laughs> the, the point is, is that, well, actually, no, that is my point. The, the, the hack for introversion is it feels a lot like rambling. It feels like you're approaching the problem very indirectly because you are. You're just putting out feelers and the, oh, there is actually a point to this ramble. Um, and that is, uh, in the professional networks post, I, I pointed out that you cannot fish and tie nets at the same time. And when you are networking with people, you cannot be fishing. You have to be tying your nets. You have to be tying knots and tying relationships with people. And that's by being interesting. And that's by being interested. And if you, if you lead off with, is anybody at your company hiring? That's hauling on the net. And they immediately know that you're, you're trying to cash in, you know, some chips that you haven't really banked with them yet. One, one other thing or a couple of other things that work that are hacks for this is, a lot of times just reaching out and it, it stems from being interested, but what it boils down to is you find things that you know they're interested in. So for example, I have a good friend here in Utah that is an avid runner and cyclist. And one of my old clients is also an avid runner and cyclist who is actually still working on an app for runners and cyclists. And so I could introduce the one 
person to the other. And, and introverted or not, I mean, all I'm doing is starting a conversation between two other people. Or mm-hmm. if I find uh, an article out there about running and it's like, look, I'm a beginner runner. I'm thinking about getting into it. What do you think about this article? And so you're, you know, you're starting a conversation about something you already know they're interested in. Um, you can yeah. send them, send out thank you notes, like physical cards you put in the mail. That's totally unexpected to pe- for people. They just don't see it coming. A lot of these ideas I'm getting from, uh, one of my picks for today, and that's Book Yourself Solid by Michael Port. Uh-huh. And, uh, he actually came on the freelancer show yesterday. And so it'll come out tomorrow from when this one releases and you can listen to all of his great ideas. But there are so many things you can do where you don't actually have to go spend your introverted uh, social energy and still reach out to people and make those connections and strengthen them without having, like I said, to go out and like be face to face with people and and, uh, spend that energy that way. I, I have some friends who over the years encouraged me to, they did things like encouraging me to write or encouraging me to, to do talks and, you know, uh, reviewed some stuff that I, that I'd written and just generally, just generally, you know, kind of pushed me forward over the years. And I would, if, if they were looking for a, a job now, I would move mountains to, to find them something, you know, and, and that really just falls under the category of being interested. You know, you, f- you find somebody who's doing something cool, somebody who does a, uh, a neat, if even amateurish presentation at your users group and, and you encourage them. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's where it all starts. Yeah. And for me, I find that I have a, I have a small group of people that we would move mountains for each other, but through investing in community, they've, Oh, and I can't remember what it's from. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm useless at citations today, but there is, there was a study shown that loose acquaintances will actually do more for you than close acquaintances in certain regards. Like when it comes mm. to helping you find a job, somebody who is a loose acquaintance will actually, they, they won't move a mountain for you, but they'll move 10 shovels of dirt for you. Even though they don't know you well enough to really move more than one shovel full of dirt, they'll move 10. And the reason why is because they know that they're in your extended tribe and there's actually something of value to them for moving 10 shovels of dirt. And that is the opportunity to move closer, to, you know, to being in, inside your close tribe. And so there's actually a social payoff for them helping you. And so, yeah, if, if you, if you're afraid of talking to people, join Toastmasters. It's the best group you can join for being an introvert and learning how to be able to just open up and talk to somebody. And like Josh and, and, and Abdi and Chuck and Katrina and James, we're all at points where we've been investing in other people for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. And now I, I have literally gotten a job from a tweet. Um, by just saying, Hey, I'm available for full-time contracting or, you know, full-time work, whatever I'm available. And I had interviews lined up that afternoon and it was because I had spent 20 years building this network of people. Well, 10 years actively building this network of people. All right. Well, I think we have time for one more question and then we're going to have to wrap up the show. So, uh, up till now, we've been mostly addressing the point of view of somebody who is an employee. And I just mm. wanted to pose the question. Let's say I'm listening to this and I'm in management or I'm, I'm scaling up a startup. You know, it's, it's more than just a couple of founders now. 
and I'm looking at it from the perspective of an employer, what is my takeaway? Go watch a couple episodes of Undercover Boss. The, fir- <laughs> the first few episodes I watched of that made me feel very cynical because they went off, they worked with people, they came back and they gave, they picked five people and did something nice for them out of 30,000 employees and everybody else got squat. But the other 29,995 people were actually moved by those gestures of magnanimity on the part of the CEO. And so the biggest takeaway that I can give uh, to somebody who's trying to run a company is on the one hand, never forget your position. Never forget that, you know, you're, you're back. You know, you, you have a responsibility to your, uh, to your board of directors or to your shareholders and you have to back that. But when you take off the uniform and be a human being and become friends with your employees. Now remember, you may have to fire your friends. So there's, there's an element of sociopathy that's required here, but doing human things for your employees, going out of your way to, you know, to create a program that costs the company a little bit of money, but benefits the employees a lot, giving them things that they care about, like putting recycle bins in the kitchen that costs you five bucks a month to rent that stupid bin. But your employees who care about recycling will be really deeply moved and think that you are a great CEO and that this is a great company. The other thing is, I've had the exit interview where I've had to go to a CEO and say, I just landed a much better job. I, I promise you I wasn't stepping out behind your back. I wasn't you know, doing this. But a friend of mine called me and they need me and, and they're offering me $20,000 more. And the CEO gave me a hug and said, good for you. It's going to suck without you. But I absolutely agree that you have to take this opportunity. And that is... I guess that's the core thing is as a CEO, make sure that the people under you are investing in their careers and that they are not conflating loyalty with trust and vulnerability to the company. I think it's interesting when you make those points, Dave, that uh, essentially you're talking again about these personal connections that we we form with people. And as people move from company to company, especially uh, upper management, a lot of times those people are put into their positions because of who they're connected to. Yep. And so, you know, if, if you're in that management position, you're in that hiring position um, as the employer or manager, just keep that in mind. I mean, you're doing yourself a favor with your career by taking care of these people and building these connections too. Yeah. All right. Well, unless anyone else has something to add, we're going to get into the picks. Okay. Oh. Yep, let's do it. All right, James, what are your picks? Uh, I've got several, but they're uh, simple. I'll go through them quick. Uh, first is this project called Dot End, uh, which is a way to set a bunch of environment variables by sticking them in a file that'll be loaded uh, when Rails or or some other Ruby project starts up. Uh, I found it very helpful recently. I'm working on a site that ties into a bunch of social networks for various things, and so. We have to manage a whole bunch of passwords and, um, dot end has like Capistrano integration. So it can automatically copy over the file from a shared location on the server and stuff like that. Uh, really neat if you need to manage a bunch of environment variables. Another pick I have is that, uh, Ruby 2.1 has just hit its first, uh, release candidate. And so it might be a good time for all of us to start playing with Ruby 2.1 and seeing what's coming. And the pick is this article uh, by Constantine Haas that 
discusses many of the changes. Um, uh, some of them kind of interesting, like uh, def returning a symbol now, uh, which then you can feed to private or other things like that. There's another one I really liked and I've forgotten now. Uh, but anyways, there's some neat changes. Oh, yeah. Uh, named arguments being required, but not having to give a default value. I love that one. So uh, some interesting changes coming in Ruby 2.1. If you want to check those out, uh, this is the article that will get you started. And then uh, last but not least, I was at Gogoruko uh, this last weekend. Thanks, Josh, for a wonderful conference. Uh, there's tons of cool stuff there, and I'm sure you'll be seeing us invite speakers and, and stuff like that. Uh, one of the great ones was uh, a robotics talk where they showed off uh, controlling several different kinds of robots using Ruby and stuff. Uh, that's accomplished with this framework called R2, um, A-R-T-O-O, and uh, it's a micro framework for robotics. So you can use it to talk to your Sphero or your AR drone or whatever, fly it around the room, things like that. Uh, so fun, fun stuff to play with, in my opinion. Those are my picks. Awesome. David, what are your picks? Um, okay, so I have a few, um, and I'll just go through them really, really quickly. Um, one just completely unrelated to anything is uh, Continuum is a TV show that's uh, on the first season is on Netflix, and I found it in, incredibly enjoyable in the, in the sense that uh, we watched an episode and then over the weekend we watched the entire series. Um, it's about a police officer who from 2077 who is chasing terrorists and they invent time travel and go back to 2012 and she has to chase them. And, uh, it's, it is really fun. And it ends on kind of a, a really good cliffhanger at the end of the first season when you find out who's manipulating the time stream from the future and the past and, and whatnot. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I'll, I'll second that one. I, I enjoyed continuum a lot and I'm waiting for the next season to show up. Yes. I watched um, the next season as it came out. It, it was pretty good too. Was it good? Awesome. And then the rest of the picks, uh, I'm just going to recap uh, things that uh, I, I mentioned on the show. The Wait But Why blog, uh, Why Generation Why Yuppies Are Unhappy, really lays out the generation gap of, you know, uh, greatest generation boomers, uh, X and Y, and why X and why Y gen- people are unhappy and what they can do about it, which is why I really like that particular uh, blog post. And then the just the three that I wrote uh, on my own blog, the... Loyalty and layoffs, loyalty in your professional network, and loyalty and trusts. The most important one of the three is the one that uh, just completely fell flat. It's got two replies. It's like, like 50 people have read it, and that is loyalty in your professional network. If you, I'm tempted to rename it to loyalty and community because I think network is really putting people off. It is the single most important post out of the three. It's even more important than loyalty and layoffs because it gives specific advice on what to do to deal with your, you know, how to improve your career right now in the most effective and easily leveraged way. And it even works for introverts. So those are my picks. Awesome. Katrina, what are your picks? Speaking of introverts, Quiet, a book by Susan Kane. It talks about some of the research about introverts and extroverts. The subtitle of the, t- of the book is The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. Um, I'm probably three quarters of, of the way through the book, and it's been kind of helpful to get a grasp on what the world thinks introversion and extroversion is and some of the, um, some of the patterns that are, that are around there and realize some of the strengths that I've, um, treated as weaknesses that I might be able to tweak how I actually think about things or how I actually do things. That's all. 
All right, Avdi, what are your picks? Yeah, I've got a few. So I just came across today this article called The Slow Winter. It's from Usenix. It is one of the funniest technical articles or articles about technical things I have read in probably years. I was practically falling off my chair reading it. It, it has to do with the, uh, the evolution of processor architectures and believe it or not makes that side splittingly funny it is an absolute must read. Moving on from technical topics, as I've started to travel internationally a bit more, I've uh, been iterating on my travel gear a bit. And uh, one of the notes that I made after, uh, as soon as I came home uh, from my trip to Paris was uh, to get a, a blanket for use on the plane. And so I picked up a, uh, an Eagle Creek uh, catnap blanket. And it's pretty nice. It, uh, it's fuzzy. And it, it rolls up and folds up reasonably small into its own little pocket that's built into it. Um, but the coolest thing about it is that it has foot, big foot pockets at the bottom. And, um, you know, if you've ever tried to, to sleep on a plane or anywhere really where you're trying to sleep while sitting up, it's, it's darn near impossible to, to comfortably sleep when your feet are cold. And when you're sleeping while you're sitting up, it's, you know, your, the blanket falls off your feet. So the fact that you can just stick your, your feet in, you know, take your shoes off and stick your feet in the foot pockets, it's a little thing, but it works really well. So I was very happy with that purchase. I used it uh, on my last trip to Barcelona and uh, was able to sleep better as a result. Uh, finally, I, I finally bit the bullet and got myself a decent office chair. I've been, been sit for years. I've been sitting in some no name piece of crap that I bought used at a like, you know, used office depot and, uh, and it was just killing me. But I'm such a cheapskate that I, I had a, it took me a really long time to, to bring myself to the point of buying myself a, a, a decent, uh, office chair. But I finally did. I, uh, I got the Steelcase Leap, which is, uh, the wire cutter's pick for best office chair. I, it, it retails for eight to nine hundred dollars. I managed to get a, uh, a refurbished version one, uh, off of eBay for about five hundred dollars. And uh, so far, I'm, I'm really, really liking it. As as office chairs go, it's uh, kind of unassuming. It doesn't look like a space chair like some of these Aeron chairs do and stuff like that. But uh, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like my ThinkPad. It, it doesn't look like much, but you can tell that they put a lot of a lot of thought into each little piece of it. And uh, it's it's quite comfortable and very very adjustable. So I think that's it for me. Uh, just for the record, I like my space chair. <laughs> I I have found that my bottom has almost no regard for visual aesthetics whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's a comfortable space chair. Anyway, yep. Josh, what are your picks? So at the risk of uh, seeming a bit self-serving here, I'm going to pick a talk from Gogoruko. Uh but I'm going to I'm going to pick it here because it was James talk. And uh, J- James James is uh, well known for his uh, amazing brain busting technical talks, like uh, ten things you didn't know Ruby could do, which was actually like eight million things. Uh, but uh, so James did a non technical talk for a while, uh, or I mean for a change, and uh, and it was one of the best talks of the program. Uh, went over really well. Uh, I heard a number of people say it was the best talk they ever saw. So I'm picking that one. And wow. Yeah. So, uh, uh, the, the videos aren't up, um, as we record this, but I think Confreaks is going to get them up uh, soon enough that we'll be able to have a link for it, um, in short order. 
And then the other thing that I, f- I found was uh, you know, a, a fun YouTube science video called Bohemian Gravi- Gravity. Uh, there's a, um, a physics grad student who's also a, a, a really good singer, and he's recorded a bunch of, uh, or uh, well, I guess several at this point, but maybe someday a bunch of videos of him doing multi-part harmony, acapella, uh, uh, renditions of well-known songs with his own made-up lyrics. And this is, you know, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody uh, with a lot of physics and quantum mechanics in it. And cool. It's, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, so that'll do it for me. I'm still, uh, I'm still in recovering from conference mode, so uh, it's a light week for me. So that's it. All right. I've got a couple of picks. Um, I mentioned one of them during the show. That is Michael Port's uh, Getting Things Done. I also really enjoyed the interview we did with him, so I'll put links to both of those in the show notes. Uh, just keep in mind that the link won't work until tomorrow of when this one gets released, just the way that the release schedule works. Book Yourself Solid. Did I say getting things done? Yes, you did. Okay, it's Book Yourself Solid by Michael Port, and uh, it talks a lot about... Um, it, it's kind of in the vein of freelancing or uh, you know finding clients. However... A lot of the advice is really good for just building good connections. And so uh, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. I've also been reading some fiction. There's There are these books by Richard Paul Evans um, about a character called Michael Vey. He, there are three books out right now, and uh, they're really, really fun. It's about uh, some teenagers that uh, have a mutation that allows them different abilities related to electricity. And, um, you know, and so they're, they're fighting each other and stuff. It, anyway, it's really, really interesting and a lot of fun to read. Um, I actually got it on, um, I got it on my wife's, uh, Audible account and, uh, the reader is awesome. So if you're into audiobooks, that's a good way to go. Finally, uh, I got this program called ShareMouse. It was recommended by Sam Saffron in one of his, uh, blog posts. We were talking about software that we use in the Ruby Rogues Parlay. And uh, I've been using it, and uh, I picked it up because Synergy quit working for me. Teleport, for some reason, wouldn't work for me. And uh, ShareMouse is working great. It's a paid product, but it's awesome. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And finally, um, I did put that Going Rogue video out, and it talks a lot about how my network and um, some of the other media that I had put out helped me find my clients during that first year. And so it's relevant to what we're talking about, and so I'm going to recommend that as well. And uh, that's it. I do want to remind people about our book club book. It is Confident Ruby by Avdi Grimm. So go pick it up. There's a discount code. We'll put that in the show notes as well. It's Rogues Club, all one word, all uppercase, and that'll get you 20% off, I believe. So go pick up the book. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you all next week. <laughs>